What does the Bible say about effective communication of God's good news? Your Bible teaching programme, Search for Truth, is investigating this question now with your Bible teacher, Brian Johnston. Thanks for joining us. So, what does the Bible say about effective communication of the Gospel? Our present series is called Sowing in Hard Soil, which indicates the kind of hostile environment which might pertain for gospel preachers who are seeking to communicate God's word, particularly in the Western world. So with this in mind, Brian, what advice does the Bible have for us? Thanks, John. There's a rich vocabulary used to describe the Apostle Paul's preaching activity at Thessalonica. It's variously said that he reasoned, he explained, He gave evidence, he proclaimed, and he persuaded. Despite his conviction that evangelism was underwritten by God's sovereignty, Paul's energetic performance is certainly on display here. He definitely was someone who preached for a verdict every time. But he wasn't without his critics, both then and now. Why now? Well, Paul's been criticised for apparently not opening his Bible and preaching the cross graphically to the Athenians, as he did to the Galatians, or for not confining himself exclusively to Christ and him crucified, as per his remarks to the Corinthians. However, as we've commented in an earlier study, this criticism totally overlooks the fact that Paul was delivering this sermon to an audience who didn't have any biblical foundation whatsoever. Paul begins by telling this group The God of whom he is speaking is the God who was unknown to them, but to whose existence an altar of theirs gave testimony. Today, nature is the unknown God. We hear statements like, it's nature's way of doing things, as if that explains why things are the way they are. Sadly, people are deflecting glory from the true God. It's instructive to compare Acts chapter 2 with Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 2, We see Peter speaking at Jerusalem to Jews or wannabe Jews. In these verses, Peter uses the Old Testament law to bring conviction, sounds a call to repentance, and the result of this open-air sermon was a massive 3,000 conversions. Now, let's look at Acts chapter 17. Once again, we have an open-air sermon, this time delivered by Paul. Instead of addressing Jews, he's speaking to a group of Greeks in Athens. Like Peter... Paul also preaches about sin and judgment, but with a different outcome. Some walked, some wanted to hear more, and only a few believed. Interestingly, it's Peter in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15 who gives us the text usually referenced by those engaging in apologetics. Apologetics is the approach that meets people where they are and engages with their existing worldview. It aims to show the other person we've understood their framework of beliefs and gently moves on to encourage them to doubt it or otherwise see its inconsistency before showing how the Christian worldview better addresses their own concerns, for example, about morality or justice or the meaning of life or where we've come from. The Judeo-Christian biblical worldview is the only one that comes up with coherent answers. It's equally important to acknowledge that apologetics is a door opener, its first base only. But let's not assume we can omit it. The Apostle Paul was right to use this approach with the Athenians. 
And the same would apply to us in the West now. And the apologetic most needed now in the West is an apologetic for the existence of God. So then, how does Paul begin? It's by saying in Acts 17 verse 24, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. In other words, Paul makes the case for the existence of a creator. Materialism is not the answer. It's widely recognised that there has to be more than mass and energy. Einstein said he could identify no means by which matter could give meaning to symbols. The clear implication is that symbolic information or language represents a category of reality distinct from matter and energy. In this way, Einstein pointed to the nature and origin of symbolic information as one of the profound questions about the world. That means there are in fact three fundamental quantities, mass, energy, and also information. The DNA code of all life forms is an example of information which, like any other information, cannot arise from anything material, but requires an intelligent sender. This is a supernatural intelligence whom the Bible introduces to us as the Judeo-Christian God. Having pointed to God's existence, Paul moved on to the origins of humanity. Verse 26, he says, And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. We've all seen the iconic graphic showing progressively more upright hominids or ape men, species between apes and humans. Now, here's a reality check on that. It's impossible for us to categorically determine species from fossils, because obviously there's no way we can observe how fossils either can or can't interbreed, which is the way that we define what all belongs to the same species. Extinct ape fossils may share characteristics with modern humans, but so do living apes. Nothing directly supports a transition from ape to human. The plain implication of Paul's words, not to mention any plain reading of biblical texts, is people have always been people and apes have always been apes, each created according to the purpose and plan of God. Having accounted for origins in his worldview, the Apostle Paul now moves on to meaning and purpose. In verse 27, he says that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Paul references the search for something beyond ourselves. Beautiful objects may distract us and even content us for a while, but the experience of countless lives is that material things don't ultimately satisfy us. That's what the Rolling Stones were intending to say when they mangled the grammar and said, I can't find no satisfaction. Author C.S. Lewis put it in a more literary form when he said, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. 
If I find in myself a desire for which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Someone else has used that as another argument for God's existence, arguing like this. Number one, every natural, innate desire in us corresponds to some real object that can satisfy that desire. Two, but there exists in us a desire which nothing in time, nothing on earth, and no creature can satisfy. Three, therefore, there must exist something more than time, earth, and creatures which can satisfy this desire. Number four, this something is what people call God and life with God forever. We would readily recognize desires we all have, such as to be appreciated, to have happiness, to find fulfillment, but ultimately, only a relationship with God offers these in fullest measure. The French philosopher effectively wrote about us all having a God-shaped hole. In other words, we have desires that nothing material can satisfy because we were designed for fellowship with God, having been created in his image. In the prevailing pagan culture of that time and place, the Apostle Paul at Athens felt the need to stress he was not talking about man-made or any created gods. What he said next was this in verse 29, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. A lady in church was telling me that while she'd been witnessing to her son, he turned around and asked her, and who made God? At first hearing, that question might seem a stunner. But then we realise it's simply an ill-defined question. We might compare it with the other ill-defined question of our age. How long is a piece of string? In a similar way, there's no answer to that. But that doesn't mean any specific string has no length. Far less does it mean that there's no such a thing as string. Well, Paul is drawing to a conclusion now. And remember, we said apologetics is not enough on its own. It simply sets the stage and gains us a hearing. So let's hear from Paul, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. May I ask you, do you believe that moral wrongs should be punished? If the answer is yes, then it really requires an afterlife for those who escape justice here. And now a follow-up question, if I may. Have you ever done any wrongs? That makes it personal, doesn't it? Life's inequalities demand ultimate justice. But how will we personally fare? One man ranting about the evils of the world was asked, and what about the evil you see within your own heart? Forgiveness becomes a relevant issue. Where else has it been made available to humans other than in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, whom Paul referred to here? Charles Colson, special counsel to US President Nixon, said, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 
of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Jesus truly did rise, showing he was who he claimed to be. No resurrection, then no Christianity, and no hope. Has the love of God laid hold on you? As our hymn says, there's love and life and lasting joy found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So come to him and find lasting peace and satisfaction. I'd like to remind you that all our talks are available online or as a transcript book, which will help you in further study and to catch up if you miss a programme. Just write in and ask for Sowing in Hard Soil. You can use email or the post and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. So it's been good to share this time with you and I hope you found the study helpful, but next time Brian will be extending the gospel studies Firstly, on the glory of the gospel through the act of creation and then the giving of the law, followed by the glory of Jesus Christ and then the working of the Holy Spirit. But for now, it's goodbye and very best wishes from our Bible teacher, Brian, our producer, David, our singers and me, John. So see you again soon. And in the meantime, may God richly bless you. I'm sorry for